Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio. It is my, um, my pleasure today to introduce a guest, uh, Russell Napier, who is a, a well-traveled and uh, extremely well-read theorist and strategist about the equity markets and indeed many markets. He was born in Belfast, not Alabama, as it will presently be revealed. He is the um, a co-founder of the Electronic Research Interchange. He's been a long-standing uh, consultant to uh, uh, CSLA, and he is an originator of the online platform for uh, high-quality research. It's called um, Electronic Research Interchange, otherwise known as ERIC. And he is the author of a fortnightly strategy piece called The Solid Ground and of a book of compelling cyclical as well as historical interest and its title is The Anatomy of the Bear, Lessons from Wall Street's Four Great Market Bottoms. And he teaches financial history at Edinburgh. And, and he is the founder, the founder of the Library of Mistakes. Now, Russell, before moving on to buying low and selling high, please do tell us about the Library of Mistakes. I'm an author, and I, it seems to me this can be read two ways. Uh, uh, the books you really should not have written or books about error. Uh, what are we talking about? Well, I hope you take this the right way, but it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you, <laughs> which is a quote I read from you many years ago, which said that in the, and I'll have to paraphrase, that in the sciences that knowledge was cumulative, but in finance it was merely cyclical. And I didn't come into this business with any knowledge of finance whatsoever because I'm a lawyer. But I did read that comment of yours and it always stuck in my mind. And the, the older I got, the more it was proved to be correct. So I thought maybe we could do something about that cumulative thing, and that's where the Library of Mistakes comes from. So it's actually a business and financial history library. But if I called it a business and financial history library, Jim, nobody would come. So it's called the Library of Mistakes. But, you know, we do have a lot. Our ancestors weren't stupid. They're certainly no more stupid than we were. We have a lot to learn from them on the good side and the bad side. So the, the word mistakes is probably a little bit of a misnomer. Business and financial history, that's what we need to learn. It's a marketing gimmick. Russell, it is said the only thing we learn from history is we learn nothing from it. And certainly the record of repeated error in finance would suggest that there is something innate in us humans about the uh, excesses that seem to characterize every single cycle and every recorded moment of financial history. How about that? Uh, yeah, but there is something we can do about it. It's called, uh, Charlie Munger says, show me incentives and I'll show you outcomes. We can't get away from the human nature bit. We can't, you know, it's always going to reappear. But if you combine human nature with really bad incentives, then you get really bad things. So I think hopefully what a study of financial history could do will never eliminate us making these mistakes. But if it helps us to redesign the incentives and put in better place incentives, then we can moderate but never eliminate some well, of these things. This is just, as I thought, Russell, that scratch the skin or the fur of a bear at what you find is an idealist. Uh, one who hopes the world gets better. Is that your definition of an idealist? I suppose so. Uh, sitting to my left is the uh, great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Um, uh, Russell Napier is directly across from me in this conference room that has everything except oxygen. And sitting at the control panel is Eric Whitehead, of, uh, also of Grant's. So now that you know the personnel. Hey, Russell, to begin with, um, let's get down to the uh, buying low and selling high portion of the discussion. And what, what's... Um, you have been known, uh, perhaps fairly or not, as, uh, as, 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 a, as a skeptical fellow, as a fellow who is more likely to be a seller than a buyer. But what is your favorite long idea now? You must have one. 
I do. Uh, my favourite long idea is Singapore government debt. Now that obviously puts me on the bear camp to be bearish or to be bullish on any government's debt because I believe, Jim, that we're living through a structural change which brings with it capital control. Now that's not something that uh, most people who've listened to this uh, broadcast have ever heard of before. I really want to have my capital in a place in a country that will always allow me to take it out. I think I'll make some capital gains on this investment as well, particularly if the world turns out the way I want it to be. But this is kind of like us sitting in 1971 and discussing whether Arthur Burns is going to put interest rates up or bring them down. It's kind of a meaningless discussion. What you had to get was that the uh, Bretton Woods system was breaking down. I think we're going through something similar. And what I want to do, but this time it ends up with capital controls coming on. So that's my long bet. It's as bearish a bet as you can get, I think. Russell, in one of your pieces, you referred um, uh, to the world monetary system, and that struck with me, stuck with me. System. What is systemic about our present monetary affairs? That's a wonderful question, because it doesn't have a name, so people think it doesn't exist. So here's what, here's what I would describe it. It clearly was never formally put together. It was never full of a room of, you know, it was never a Bretton Woods type situation. What it was is really since the late 1990s with the devaluation of the uh, emerging market currencies really following on from China in 94. Most of the emerging markets decided they weren't going to let their currencies move freely against the United States dollar. That is our current global monetary system. It wasn't chosen by the West. It wasn't chosen by politicians. It was uh, jury-rigged, put together, but that's how it works. And that's the system, I think, which is falling apart. And we've got to discuss what happens as it as it falls apart. But uh, that's still a system, even if it's not, not a formalized system. Well, in fairness to this uh, jury-rigged improv we have called a monetary system, uh, the gold standard itself was evolved and not made. Nobody invented it. It was evolved with the assent of individuals and trading firms. Uh, to me, it is distinguished in that respect. Our present regime, I think, is a confection mostly of a central bank and governmental action rather than of spontaneous social evolution. However, that is a dogmatic point that should have been a footnote rather than an actual talking point. So let us speculate on the future, again, clinging, if we can, to the business of positioning and investing. So you are looking for um, a slide into, and it would be a slide, into capital controls. You're looking for um, a stronger dollar, paradoxically, in the face either of weakening American growth or of strengthening American growth. So the dollar would go up, except, I suppose, against the Singapore dollar. But what, what about the other currencies? There are so many of them, and they all rather stink, don't they, Russell? They do. We can go through each of them in no. turn. No, not through each of them in turn. Well, Japan has, is, uh, has, has to go through. Uh, Japan has run out of savings. So when a country runs out of savings, it, returns, it turns to its central bank. That's not a good time to own its exchange rate. That's quickly dealing with Japan. What, what about the Japanese uh, supposed uh, mountain of net overseas assets? Are they not savings? Well, they are savings. So in an extreme, I mean, I've written about this, in an extreme situation, the, the state could mandate that those savings are returned, that those, those investments are liquidated, and they're brought back to fund the government. That's certainly possible. It's happened before. We did it, uh, you know, we, we, well, we had to do it in the United Kingdom in the early 1940s because you wouldn't give us any land lease unless we did it. So anyway, we did it, and we brought our savings back, and we, we, we did it. So, But it, it would be an extreme situation. We might get to that extreme situation where one day the government mandates those foreign uh, the savings and foreign currencies are liquidated and brought back, but we're a long way from that. And of course, they want this, they want the exchange rate to go down. So it's not the side of sort of policy. So bear, bearish on the end, and uh, and so euro is uh, there. Are not a few reasons to be bearish on the euro, I suppose. Although, sure. Isn't that a rather conventional point of view? And you're such an unconventional fellow. 
Well, yes. So I do worry that I'm too conventional in that one particular issue. There is a bias here. The Anglo-Saxon or Celt, depending on your opinion, view is always pretty bearish on this uh, exchange rate. Uh, the Europeans are not so bearish on it. So there are lots of bulls on the euro, as uh, at least it's staying together, and they, most of them or nearly all of them live in Europe. So it's not as if everybody in the world is uh, of the Anglo-Saxon Celtic view that this is a doomed political experiment. It's not a financial experiment. It's a political experiment, which I, there's one thing I want to really add on that, because I think something really important happened about four weeks ago. The German finance minister said there can be no further political integration in Europe. His words, not my words. Now, that's a big call because I think most people would who analyse that exchange rate would say, well, without a political union, without a fiscal mm -hmm. union, it can't work. So for the German finance minister to say it can't happen was a big thing. So uh, uh, bearish on the euro and uh, the renminbi, uh, that uh, emission with of paper or digital wampum from the People's Republic of Japan with, with Mao on the cover. Now, is that a good sign for a currency to have one of the 20th century's leading mass murderers right there on the front of the piece of paper? Well, I'll tell you, the day I'll be bearish on the dollars when they take Andrew Jackson off the uh, of Urno. That's so, uh, but it, it, it doesn't really matter who's on this. But look, mercantilism's over. Mercantilism's dead. You can't be the second biggest economy in the world and run a mercantilist system and manage your exchange rate. So I think, once again, m most people would concede that if they move away from mercantilism, the first move in the exchange rate is down. Now, so, is mercantilism dead or is it dying? Uh, it is dying. It isn't dead for sure. I mean, if it was dead, who would still be manipulating their exchange? Rates. I mean, they would already have moved to much more flexible exchange rates. That's my big call on capital controls, Jim. It's the idea that they would move to flexible exchange rates and politicians would accept the volatility associated with it seems to me highly unlikely. So the having your cake and eating it is capital controls with somewhat more flexible exchanges, but not targeted exchange rates. And so, so you're doing a, a nice little job here of me knocking down all the skittles and just leaving one upstanding, and that one upstanding is the United States dollar. Isn't there another monetary asset which left outdoors in the sun glints uh, fetchingly and um, uh, like that? Uh, can't a, can't you that, think of something? Is that like a Ferrari? In or? the periodic table of the elements? Um, yeah, look, I'm also bullish on gold. I don't know if it's for exactly the same reasons that you are, but we're we're looking at a decline in the power of markets and a rise in the power of the state. Uh, we're looking at the word control coming back. And I just left Toronto. They just brought in rent controls yesterday. don't know if anybody they saw did. that. They did. They did, because Vancouver did it, so they thought they better do it as well. When you put the word control, when you get a bull market in the word control, my belief is you'll get a bull market in the word gold. And there's no doubt that if it's a capital control or a rent control or a credit control or a price control, as soon as you hear that word control, reach for your bar of gold. But, you know, Evan um, Lorenz uh, yesterday observed, uh, the Wall Street Journal, I think, beat him to it by a few hours, but he observed that, um, uh, that authoritarian uh, states, that is markets within authoritarian states and the emerging markets have lately outperformed uh, stock markets and in republics and uh, democracies and the like, and, and and so how does how does that observation square with the notion that uh, uh, that uh, you know that controls are doubtful uh, features of, um, of financial governance? It squares with the notion that very few people who are in financial markets have ever done a degree in politics, but they've all of them have done a degree in supply and demand. Uh, and if somebody comes along and you think that person's going to screw supply and demand in your favor, maybe you like it. Uh, but these politicians have a, a habit of bringing some baggage with them. Uh, and I think that's the history of all of this stuff. Uh, any 
everybody in finance who plays with politicians should expect to get their fingers burnt. So frankly, I just think the markets don't understand politics. And I often uh, do speeches, maybe there's three or 400 people in the room. I do ask, who's got a degree in politics? It's never more than three or four people. So I think if you go to business school, you don't get politics. You don't get political risk. If you're a financial historian, hopefully you get some better idea of what this is really all about. Uh, some people say that uh, America is now, uh, uh, this, this political risk in America where there had not been perhaps six months or a year ago. Do you buy that? No, I don't. You've got a constitution. I don't buy that. You've got a strong constitution. Uh, that might be a bad thing in terms of stopping people doing things, but the history of populism is don't be frightened of populists until they play around with the constitution. Uh, it happens. It could, it's happened here. It could happen again. But, uh, I mean, we know one place where a man's just played around with the constitution starts with a T. But the history of populism is worse, much worse in emerging markets. That's where you get the issues of sequestration uh, and much higher control. So the, so I'm worried about politics, but not particularly uh, in the developed world generally. Can you help us imagine a timeline of of capital controls, uh, the beginning where and how would it proceed and, and how do we play it? Okay, so I, I'm going to pick Turkey, which I've been doing for, for some years uh, to that, because the president uh, wants to have his cake and eat it, which is he wants low interest rates and a stable exchange rate. And he has a current account deficit and he wants both of these things. And the playbook to get there may be a mistake, but the playbook to get there is probably capital controls. Uh, uh, when that happens, it has a profound impact on Turkey, but to me, it will change the whole view of emerging market risk. I have long debates with emerging market debt fund managers. They tell me that these people have the ability to pay, and I ask them about the willingness to pay, and there's complete blank. The spreadsheet says ability, the investor says willingness. So when we see that there's a country, Turkey, that has an ability, but the Prime Minister, the President, says no, there is no willingness to pay, then I think this spreads to other emerging markets somewhat in the way it did from Thailand to other emerging markets in disturbing the flow of capital. So it's obviously very cautious on emerging markets and uh, commodity prices if we're moving back into that world of capital controls. Uh, today's Wall Street Journal talks about the, uh, the pickup and demand from emerging markets as evidenced in conference calls, earnings calls with uh, Nestle and with uh, Unilever. So you don't buy that. I mean, in your view, emerging markets, whatever they might offer uh, fleetingly in the here and now, are, are if not doomed, then in the way of a big event, perhaps beginning from Turkey, namely the control of capital movement. Yes, simply. I mean, and the trade figures also suggest that emerging markets are picking up and, and doing well. But emerging market crises are really about a redirection of capital, a reassessment of emerging market risk. And I think the markets have got emerging market risk very wrong. And the repricing of that causes economic problems, real problems for the real economy. You know, um, uh, I'm trying to imagine myself in the position of uh, one of the last uh, actively managed mutual funds um, there must be two or three of them left. Every, everybody else's money is now in the hands of uh, Vanguard. Uh, but this imagined uh, portfolio manager is sitting here and listening um, uh, with considerable enjoyment to this discussion, as scintillating as it is, but wondering if the emerging markets are a no-go and if the United States of America, a constitutional republic, without uh, significant political risk is perhaps a no-go in your view, owing to the extended valuation of the market. Um, and if Europe is a political experiment waiting to collapse or not waiting. So where exactly do you go to buy stocks? To buy equities, that's very difficult. I personally buy them in Japan because I do believe that the yen is going to fall precipitously. And in the short run, that'll be extremely good for 
uh, Japanese equities. They are hedged. Any holdings in Japan are hedged. Uh, that is a glimmer of hope for equity investors. But this is clearly a, a discussion and a view of the world which says you shouldn't own equities. That's happened before. Uh, last time the global monetary system broke down wasn't a good time to own equities, nor was it a good time to own bonds. Both asset classes got pretty much destroyed very rapidly after the destruction of Bretton Woods. So it's clearly not a, a presentation or a view of the world that rewards the equity investor generally. There's a, an asset called risk parity or an asset technique, asset management technique called risk parity. And you, you buy a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you lever bonds because bonds are inherently less risky than equities. And to equilibrate the risk, you own bonds on margin. So what do you think of the risk parity stratagem in the world that you imagine? In this world, there is a financial issue and bond prices go up. I mean, I don't have any doubt about that. I mean, I obviously have doubt that my view of the world is right or wrong. But if it begins to play out, I think the bond prices go up, not not down. Uh, it's a deflationary. You know, people will say, well, if, all, all we know is if the monetary system falls apart, you get inflation. And they'll say that because obviously that's what happened the last time. But on this occasion, actually, you initially get deflation, which would be very positive. And how would the, the central banks react to this uh vision of deflation. Uh, I've just read Mr. Bernanke's book on the flight over from uh, Scotland, and uh, it's pretty easy to work out what their reaction will be, which will be to be absolutely sure that the real economy is insulated from that uh, horrible, malign thing called the financial economy, and they'll fail this time. But will they... Will they not react with massive credit creation again? I, I, well, they, they certain, I, I certainly believe they'll react by buying more government bonds. I mean, more quantitative easing uh, it will happen in this scenario. But, but just, just, Jim, one really important thing about this, I think it comes with the government as well. It's not going to be the central banks in, in isolation. What's going to come in is the word control. So, I mean, if I say to you the government's coming, most people think, well, bigger fiscal policy, that's also good. But no, it's going to be much more with moving us back into the world of control. So the world doesn't... When the government, so we've all benefited from central bankers, we, we being the owners of assets. Uh, and so the view is, hey, you just get more central banking, the asset guys win. But if you get more controls from government, can the return on capital employed go up? And can the value of return on capital employed go up? And my answer would be no. So it is good for bonds in the in the short run. There is a reaction, but the yeah. reaction is not just central banking. Let's let's talk about bonds for a second. A bond is a promise to pay money. Money is an undefined term in the twenty first century. It's a, you know it's a an X or an O. It's in the cloud. It's on a piece of paper. But in any case, it is a concept rather than a construct. It's not. A, it's a, it's not neither a weight nor a measure, but uh, an instrument of national policy. Okay, so bonds are quoted. Bonds are quoted in Europe at uh, at yields that are not exactly obviously in, inviting to the value-seeking investor. France, which is facing supposedly an existential moment in the weeks to come, has a two-year note trading at thirty odd basis points below zero. Its 10-year note is priced at all of 93 basis points as we talked, or if we had talked yesterday, that was where it would be. So if you're bullish on bonds, are you bullish on things like that? I think you've just told me just how big the rally in treasuries could be because there is a whole bond market out there which is constructed in a currency that may not ultimately survive. The other one that's left, I'm not suggesting this by any means is a three, four, five, or ten-year view, but in a one-year, two-year view, the other bond that is left but could become incredibly highly bid, given what's happening in the other one. And and this capital controls that I've discussed in terms of Turkey, if and it's only if we did have a fascist and a communist running off for the president of France, 
Exchange controls in Europe are not far away. They have used them twice in Greece and both in Cyprus. So I'm not suggesting it's the European uh, bond market, but the, the you, I think you've made a case for the Treasury there, at least in the short run. And it's just one other thing. The reason that you buy them is not just because you have a view on, on growth and inflation. It's We're talking about a financial crisis. We're talking about a deliquification. That's what a capital control is, a deliquification. As you know, well, liquidity problems can fade into solvency problems. Uh, and that is when people really run for what is still a reserve currency asset, which is still a liquid asset and still one that they consider to be of good faith. Uh, whether that's the right view or not, that's where people run. So the, the second kick, kicker for the Treasury is that's, the, that's where I go for that liquid asset I need to hold if I find myself feeling the words heading to, into a bad place. Russell, in the solid ground, you recently ruminated that uh, the, the last refuge of the bear is, is, um, is reference to uh, uh, events past. And, and um, you know, so you go back and, and look at some historical episode and you say, aha, and then quite sensibly observe that uh, in effect that uh, if it were that easy, the historians would be so rich and as it is, they are not. So, okay. But you mentioned Thailand and in your writings, you have mentioned the crash of 87. So this is one event is 10 years ago and the other event is 20 years ago or th th sorry, 30 years ago. So, um, uh, well, I guess one event is 20 and the other is 30 and doesn't time fly. But uh, if you would please uh, compare and contrast events surrounding the Asia crisis of 1997 and their relevance now and the stock market crash of 87 and their relevance now. Well, uh, the Taiwan I was involved with because I was there at the time. I was living in Hong Kong. And in the one year running up to that, I was going around advising my clients that Thailand would devalue. Now, the reaction in Wall Street in particular was, where is this place and why the hell do I care? The answer to that question proved to be, I'm not saying that I knew what the answer was, but the answer proved to be that it fundamentally changed the flow of capital to all emerging markets and therefore had a profound global impact on growth rates in all emerging markets, commodities, etc. So I'd say that's where Turkey is. I get very much get the same response, particularly in Wall Street, where is Turkey and why do I care? That's why you. That's what I think the, the similarity is. I would, back to the same issue, we know that the reaction to that was to bring in the IMF. The IMF came in with lots of prescriptions, but one thing that was not on the list of prescriptions under any circumstances was capital controls. Now, one person did it. That was Mahathir. Surprised everybody. I could run into great details about what it meant, uh, but it did exacerbate the problem. So I think there'll be many more people than that this time. As you know, the IMF is not exactly against capital controls anymore. No, I'd rather embrace them. There's been a change of view on that. So, And then just to go back to 1987, I was... Uh, student in Belfast, so I wasn't exactly that close to the marketplace, uh, probably watching it in a bar somewhere on television. Uh, but the uh, the algorithms are what uh, I see that is the, the similarity with 1987, is that we had the portfolio insurance uh, thing, which was looked into by the Brady Commission. Uh, there's a lot more of that electronic, uh, axiomatic, reflexive trading going on in the marketplace. And if things start to give, I do worry that there is not Anybody, as you said, where are the active managers who are going to jump out of the foxhole and go running forward to uh, to embrace the value if coming the other way is just waves of selling by algorithms? I don't know any algorithms personally, so I can't speak for them, but I suspect that uh, they're, uh, they're not going to be jumping out of the foxholes first. You know, I, I, I was talking with a very good investor the other day who reflected that the, um, uh, the number of trillions of dollars of of, uh, of investable funds that are committed without regard to valuation. It's a very long list. Let's take indexation, uh, ETF, 
fixation. Uh, gold actually is one of those things. People don't think about the value of gold mining shares. They buy them because of a concept, um, agricultural futures. But but the the the. The idea of value as a touchstone of investment seems to have uh, rather gone away. What does that mean? It, do, if, well, if, if the premise is correct, I'm not okay. sure if you well, accept I think the premise. I, I, I absolutely 100% accept the premise. And, and it's a very profound meaning for the whole of society, not just for the markets. I mean, I often think what would happen if uh, we had another chair in this room and Adam Smith was sitting here and we described what you've just described. We explained to him that the way we allocate the world's precious savings and capital is based on the existing market capitalization of that capital. And he would clearly and obviously ask us what the hell we call it. What is that system? Because it's not capitalism. Um, I, I, can, I can address this. Uh, Mr. Adam Smith, it's called a Vanguard, and they take in $1 billion a day, except on the weekends when they kind of take the day off. So if we're not allocating capital based upon return, never mind value, but just on market capitalization, we've gone into a post-capitalist system. It should give power. I mean, I can walk out tomorrow morning if I owned America's biggest corporation and issue equity and know someone's going to buy it. No matter how harboring the idea is, I might want to send a man to Mars. Oh, who, who could that be? Uh, but I will get money from, a, from an index fund if I want to do it. Now, in capitalism, society pays a price. But here's the, it's always the same problem. For each individual, that decision to buy an index fund might, might make sense. But for society as a whole, it has profoundly negative impacts. And no one's talking about them. No one's bothering about them because nobody wants to pay for the price of active management. And frankly, it's been badly done as well because the incentives have been wrong. But if we had the right incentives, active management is where we should be, but we, we're not, so it's bad for the whole of society. Uh, kind of an inside baseball question to wind up, Russell. You and I are both in the, uh, in the research business. Uh, given the, uh, uh, the uh, shall we say, marginalization of active management, uh, isn't investment research rather... An oxymoronic proposition. I mean, who is going to read it? Uh, I mean, the bots can't even read. What are we doing in this line of work? Oh, well, I guess nobody reads it until everybody reads it. We've just got to make sure we're around when that happens. All right. Excellent resolution. Uh, Russell Napier, what a delight it has been to have you here all the way from uh, what's Selma, Alabama, wherever you're from. Um, <laughs> Edinburgh, actually. Um, uh, Evan has uh, sat uh, silently. I, I, uh, I think I'm to blame for that. But uh, thank you, Evan, for being here too. I'm Jim Grant. And uh, please come and join us again. It has been a pleasure having you. <laughs>